You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law during the nationwide protests, the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine, and all the time. I'm Elisa, and we're here to talk about civics. That is the knowledge of the Constitution and how gulping down news on social media renders Americans vulnerable to foreign influence campaigns. And I'm Nicole. Quick disclaimers, because lawyers need and live by disclaimers. The lawyers on NSLT are always here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. And I'm Yvette. We continue our series in celebration of the 19th Amendment on 19 Amazing Women in National Security Law. So, of course, we had to bring in Elizabeth Rinskoff Parker, who smashed the glass ceiling in the 1980s when she was named General Counsel of the National Security Agency. We'll get into what followed that amazing accomplishment uh, in this podcast. Elizabeth, welcome to NSLT. And thanks to all of you for inviting me. It's a delight to be with you. So um, can we just jump right in? How did you get this amazing job at the NSA, one of the most infamous three-letter government agencies? I, of course, wouldn't sign on to infamous because it was, frankly, one of the nicest jobs I ever had. Um, You know, I could be smart-alecky and say, well, sometimes it's smarter to be lucky than lucky to be smart. Uh, And maybe that does fit here, but I've had a wonderful lifetime mentor in Dan Schwartz, who was the general counsel before I was offered the position. And Dan mentioned my name to a a wonderful woman named Anne Caracristi. And Anne was then the deputy, the first woman deputy uh, at the agency. That would be the senior civilian position. Um, Highly regarded, uh, really quite a, a remarkable woman. And she obviously took a liking to me. And she offered me the position not once, but twice. The first time I turned it down, actually. I had no idea what NSA was. The second time, I'd given it a second thought and decided I was prepared to take a risk. That is uh, such an incredible story. Um, Why'd you turn it down in the first place? Well, um, I was a widow with a young child. I was interested in a change in position. I was then at the Federal Trade Commission, and I had several offers, but I felt I had to do something that made sense um, and would be stable and, what shall we say, secure because of my daughter. I was the sole support of my daughter, and I didn't know what NSA was or what it did. I had a very good feeling about the place, I have to tell you. It just felt right. But I thought at the end of the day, maybe it was a smarter move to go into a more traditional law firm, which I did. But the government managed to suck you back in. (laughs) Well, if anybody has ever done international arbitration, certainly at the time when I was doing it, where we had just concluded the negotiations that caused the release uh, of the hostages in Iran, but also the creation then of the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal, I was working 24 hours a day. It was really pretty, pretty terrible eventually. And when they called a second time, they hired someone in my stead who then left after two years. Um, I thought to myself, you know, 
I'll do anything other than international arbitration. <laughs> if it doesn't work out, I can always wait table. I actually thought that. Now, that was true in those days. I had waited table. Today, I wouldn't be able to lift the trays. But in any event, I had no idea what I was getting into. I should say I had a better idea because in point of fact, as it turned out, my first father-in-law had been in Navy intelligence and he had done a little bit of, if you will, snooping around for me. So it wasn't quite as much of a risk as perhaps I'm making it sound, but it worked out very, very well. So you made it possible for professional women like me and my fellow uh, co-hosts uh, to have it all. Can you just kind of tell us like what it was like, right? Because you were doing this uh, job in the 1980s and it was just three years after uh, Justice O'Connor became the first female justice on the Supreme Court. Can you just kind of help us understand just exactly how uh, transformational it was for you to be the general counsel at the NSA? Well, you know, I don't know that I would be the person to answer the question. I will tell you that I think it was maybe a year ago, the now deputy general counsel at NSA, who was a woman, wanted to bring all of us back and particularly wanted me to come back because some of the women I had hired were interested in, in reconnecting with me. But the fact is that by the time I arrived at NSA, I had already been a lawyer for gosh, uh, over a decade. And when I went to law school, I was one of eight out of 350, eight women out of a class of 350. And it was not a warm reception. And so I, I suppose I could say I'd become inured to what should, what, what would I say? I guess a, a not necessarily welcoming environment. But one of the things I learned early on was that it was critically important to, um, keep my own personal situation out of the discussion and debate. Now, I was doing initially civil rights litigation in the Deep South, and so I was really putting myself in a number of controversial spots. But I learned quickly that I, I never took a personal insult. It was the client first. It was the cause first. And that really stood me, I think, in good stead because I was able to um, simply let criticisms um, roll off my back. I didn't pay attention to them. So can you just tell us a little bit about uh, just the biggest issues that you encountered as general counsel at the NSA? Well, I think probably there were three standout um, experiences that were memorable for me, but maybe I should begin by saying that um, I did arrive uh, at an agency that I didn't know a great deal about, and I came in with certain prejudices. And one of them was that our military officers, our JAG officers, were, as I put it in the time, a junk item who would not help me. And I quickly um, learned the error of my ways and found that among a really fine legal staff that I was inheriting, among the best were the JAG officers. Um, I developed, if you will, the zeal of the converted, and <laughs> I made it my business to find as many uh, JAG officers as I could and get them assigned to my office because I found them so well-trained, so well-prepared, and the whole office, frankly, and here's another assumption that was wrong on my part, uh, was much more careful about protecting the rights of American citizens than I think I would have been. Other, other general counsels who succeeded me made the same comment. But as to the issues, the question you've asked, I think the ones that stand out in my mind were, were first of all, 
Um, the change in the way encryption became important, not just to the military national security community, but to the entire commercial, what shall we say, the commercial scene. Uh, that was just beginning, and it was a matter of difficult um, transition because heretofore, encryption really hadn't been something that mattered much in the commercial sector. And when suddenly strong encryption became important to the development of the internet and, and other types of activities, the um, Defense Department, NSA, where of course we do our decoding and coding, really felt um, quite threatened uh, at the fact that suddenly this technology, which they had pretty much controlled up to this point, was going to get out of, out of control as far as they were concerned. And of course, the FBI had a concern there too as to whether the bad side, if you will, would get access to encryption. They wouldn't be able to uh, crack information when they needed to or, or crack into it. Drug trafficking in particular was their concern. So that was one big policy issue that was burbling up um, during my time. I think the second one would really be, and this carried over to when I finally moved later on to the CIA, the relationship between law enforcement and intelligence gathering activities. Uh, at the point when I arrived, we were still really at the end of the Cold War, and the divide between law enforcement activities and national security activities was a fairly sharp divide. You really didn't need to uh, coordinate because there was very little overlap with the exception perhaps of counterintelligence activities. And that began to change as we saw the terrorist threat affecting U.S. interests overseas. And then of course, uh, drugs was another problem and frankly, international crime. So all of this began to come together. And for the public at large, I think we saw this burst into the open with the 9-11 attacks. But that was just beginning to happen when I was at NSA. The third issue, and this seemed to, to be something that I dealt with in every one of my positions, was the espionage in the case of NSA that had been conducted by a man named Ron Pelton. That was a criminal trial that ultimately uh, achieved his conviction and, of course, um, punishment. Um, but it was really a very a very challenging thing for the agency because in order uh, to assist the Justice Department in that prosecution, they had to take some steps that caused the uh, uh, revelation of some, you might not say terribly surprising activities. The fact was we were spying on the Soviets. Well, I guess that wasn't a big surprise, but we had never acknowledged it at that point. Well, Elizabeth, I got it. First of all, I just want to make a couple of observations before I hand it over to Elisa. I'm really glad to hear that the Jags had as strong a reputation for being amazing um, colleagues as they did when I was uh, in service. So thank you for that. Um, and also, it's remarkable how the issues that you're talking about you're working on in the 1980s are so very, very relevant to today. Um, when you're talking about encryption, we're still having that struggle between, you know, the needs of the private sector and, you know, our law enforcement and our um, intelligence uh, requirements, uh, the things that we need in order to, to you know, do good, um, good uh, prosecutions, for example. Yeah. Um, and your, uh, and the espionage uh, issue is, is 
pretty close to the fore when we're talking about um, a lot of these uh, Russians that are that are still running around as as many decades as, as the Cold War is over um, that are still running around and Maybe interfering. The Cold War just gone underground. Would you exactly. <laughs> we just we've just, it's the Cold War by another name. Um, yeah. Where we've where we've got uh, Maria Butina and um, Constantine Kalimnik and a lot of these other characters. It's it's just maybe changed the title, but a lot of the themes are still the same. It's it's fascinating. I think, I think that is true, and it's certainly been interesting to me to see how, notwithstanding some of what I'm talking about happened many many years ago, it, it is still relevant today. Right. Well, Elizabeth, I have to say I'm kind of your groupie, your official groupie. I think that you deserve one. But um, I'm just dazzled because I've, I've, I've watched and looked at a lot of things you've done with incredible admiration. Um, and, and I appreciate your candor about the choices that you made when you had a child. I think that's important to a lot of women to know that somebody of your stature struggled uh, and, and, and decisions were informed uh, by those things. And, and I think that's a, that was a wonderful thing to hear. I'll tell you where I'm really dazzled though. I, did you have something to do with the Algiers Accords? No, I did not. Um, I, what shall we say? I guess I was, to some degree, either the beneficiary or the victim of them. <laughs> it sounds like it. Well, I think anybody who was involved in a negotiation that involved the end of the terrorist siege in Tehran um, really walked into history in a way I can see how your next step at these intelligence agencies would have been um, a good choice. For you and a great experience. I want to switch over now. This is near and dear to my heart. Um, having grown up as a child uh, of a career CIA officer and scientist, um, I, I'm just really impressed with um, a number of women who have functioned in the intelligence community before um, sort of we were in the full state of women's rights that we are today. And just to jump back at NSA, some of the strongest cryptographers there were actually women and we'll hyperlink a couple of articles on them to sort of amplify the women in national security impact um, of this podcast. But your time at the CIA was, it sort of coincided with a lot of major events that I think we may have forgotten, but you came in in 1990 um, and you are dealing with a human intelligence agency, which is really a very different animal from a SIGINT agency. Um, you've got to deal with um, operators, uh, a global reach, all sorts of thorny legal issues. Can you, to the extent you're able to, can you talk about the biggest issues that you faced in that role? Well, maybe I'll start, Elisa, um, by setting the stage this way. Um, before I arrived at the CIA, I did spend almost a year at the State Department. And as I mentioned prior to that, I'd been at the Federal Trade Commission. And one of the things I learned at the State Department rather powerfully was that we do not have a monolithic government. It's very different from a cultural as well as, of course, a mission perspective, depending on where you sit. The funding sources are different as well. And so uh, NSA was relatively, it's of course a component of the Department of Defense, well-funded. In contrast, I found the State Department threadbare, uh, doing a great deal with very little financial resources. And then of course I came to the CIA and as you point out, quite a different agency, a very different set of missions, 
um, a much different organizational environment. So I suddenly realized the basic truth that, um, what shall we say, it's kind of a loose confederation sometimes of warring tribes. They're very different and the cultures are different everywhere you go. And you need to, I think, understand that in order to appreciate what some of the challenges are in, in each place. For the CIA, unlike NSA, um, they sit much, much co closer to the policy world. And so even in my day, they tended to get uh, hit, if you will, with a great deal of policy, very fractious policy discussion and debate um, that you didn't really feel at NSA. NSA was in the, what we say in my day, in a much more protected environment. And there was also a sense that at the CIA, you had a very um, different set of missions all combined together. So yes, there's human intelligence. There were the analysts. Um, but there's also a technical directorate as well. And so you have quite a different combination of, of different activities. Um, I think too, and maybe this is kind of a little bit of um, shooting from the hip as a, a lay psychiatrist, but I felt that the folks at the CIA, particularly within the operations directorate, were really under an awful lot of pressure. It was very much a high pressure position perhaps the analysts a little less so. Uh, but you just sensed that, that this was a group of people who really were um, doing remarkable things, but under very difficult circumstances. And it, it had a toll. So your time there, um, a few major events happened, one of which was the uh, tremendous um, scandal involving Aldra James, who apparently managed to pass the polygraph, as, it, as it's been explained to me, uh, because he truthfully answered the question of whether or not the Russians had pitched him, uh, with the answer no, because in fact he had pitched the Russians. And, uh, and I do recollect, you may correct me if I'm wrong, that without naming her, it was actually a woman uh, within the CIA who discovered uh, his wrongdoing or brought it to the fore. Um, and the other thing that happened was an incredibly tragic terrorist event, which was a man named Miramal Kanzi opened fire on CIA employees um, and then disappeared, not to be found for years. What sort of, how did those things touch you in your role as general counsel, if you can talk about that? Well, I, I, let me start by saying that when I first uh, debated at the family dinner table, whether I might, might go to NSA. My daughter, then 13, said, now let me understand, mother, if you take this job, does that mean you'll never again be able to talk about work at dinner? And I said, well, I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, I think you're right. She said, take the job. Uh, so I tell that by way of the humor involved, but also because <laughs> saying that in point of fact, she was wrong because I could talk about the job for the simple reason that what interested me oftentimes the most was not what might be classified, but the personalities. So with that somewhat verbose uh, introduction, let me say, I think we can talk about June Vertefei, who was the woman you mentioned, who indeed led the investigation of Alder James. Um, I think she's probably no longer living, but really she was out of central casting. She was something out of a, out of a Graham Greene novel, just wonderful. She looked like somebody's grandmother. She was very careful, very thorough. And what she did was remarkable because 
it was called a brute force investigation, which is to say that normally you identify a spy because someone gives you a hint or a tip off. But in this case, it was really Jean Vertfey doing really very thorough examination and investigation. We knew we were losing people and she was able to gather the data and analyze it in a way that gradually zeroed in on who the people might be. And that's really what led to ultimately Alda James's prosecution. The other, again, I think this is kind of an amusing story, but it's an interesting one too. Um, you describe it as, how did you put it, the scandal of the set? It was an awfully, awful experience. I think subsequently maybe people would say that Hansen, Hansen at the FBI was worse, but this was a huge loss. And so we went to, when we knew we were going to be prosecuting him and announcing that, we went to a great deal of care as to how that would be announced for the American public. And that meant uh, bringing together, at that time it was Janet Reno, who was the Attorney General, and the at the time the head of the CIA was Jim Woolsey, I'm trying to remember who the third person was, but suffice to say, we were trying to show unity and a sober but really serious approach. And I remember running all this by my colleague at the Department of Justice, Mark Richard, who for many, many years was highly regarded for heading the National Security Division. And he said to me, Elizabeth, he said, we prosecute GS-14s every day. Why is this such a big deal? I suppose that's another small example of how sometimes intelligence and law enforcement entities are not really speaking to one another. He didn't really understand why this is as big a deal as it ultimately, of course, was. Wow. All right, so that casts suspicions, of course, now on every GS-14. So you want to you wanna be either a 13 or a 15, but don't hover in that, that vast wasteland. Um, so <clears throat> while you were there, though, uh, I, I'd like to help our... Um, our listeners understand what the culture was like in terms of opportunities for women, how you were received within the agency. I mean, I'm trying to sort of explode the myth that the CIA has not provided opportunities to women um, over the years and ha has not been a place where women were highly empowered. And, and that was a great example about June. Um, but how were you received? How did you feel while you were there? And do you feel gender played any role? Again, um, perhaps I'm not the best person to ask. I will say this, when I arrived at the CIA, I discovered a remarkably talented group of senior women. It was as if um, suddenly the door had been opened and I was introduced to a group of friends that I hadn't known I had. They were uh, highly educated, well-informed, uh, and they actually did a number of things together. And I think the one very graceful thing that I may credit myself in having done was they invited me as the senior woman uh, to speak to their group. And I said, you know, actually, I'm not the senior woman. The most senior woman here is the person who's the career person, Helene Boatner at the time. And I said, how am I to talk to you? The most I can do is to tell you a little bit about my background. And they loved hearing about somebody who had a very different background. And they asked me, if we could continue that process. And the next person I invited to join this group, which met, I think, monthly, uh, was my, uh, what shall we say, my, my godmother, so to speak, fairy godmother, um, Anne Cara Christie. And she came and spoke with them. But it was a very 
uh, impressive group of women. And, you know, I think now we have, of course, one of those women who's heading the CIA. And that's a good example, I think, of what a talent pool there is there. I'm speaking, of course, of Gina Haspel. All right, well, I'm gonna pass it off to Yvette to talk a little bit about, draw you out a little bit about your time elsewhere. So Elizabeth, like first, I just want to comment because we're celebrating women through this series about um, the cooperation you're talking about with your colleagues in government. Um, I think too often the trope of the cat fight with the women who can't get along is, is just so toxic and so incorrect. So thanks for talking about how supportive um, you were and, and your colleagues were of each other. Um, I'd love to know about your work at the State Department. You were the deputy legal advisor um, for a year, and that's some pretty interesting work, but it's different, right? So like you're in the intelligence community, it's more covert, um, and diplomacy is the opposite of that. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, your work there? Well, uh, maybe I'll add to, add to the question you've just asked. Uh, the question you earlier asked, how did you happen to end up at the State Department? And that too has a funny story, I think. I bumped into a friend on an occasion, I'd been at NSA at this point almost five and a half years, and he said, are you gonna retire out there? Or maybe he said, are you gonna die out there? <laughs> I said, I love it out here, I can't imagine, can't think of what better position there would be for me. He said, well, think harder. And I said, well, you know, maybe I would like to be the number two person at the State Department Legal Advisor's Office. And I had a reason for saying that. And who knew that he was actually in touch with, that time Jim Baker was the um, Secretary of State, Bob Kimmett was the number three at the uh, department, and they were looking for a new principal deputy. And so some months later, I, I had this very surprising <laughs> offer. Uh, which I totally had not anticipated. And I said, well, um, it was a political appointment. And I said, I've never had a political appointment and I don't want one. Um, you'll have to convert this to a career position for me to take it, which they did amazingly. So I moved into the State Department and I remember early on having the thought, oh my word, I could do real damage here. <laughs> and then thinking, this job is too hard for me. Then I thought to myself, this job's too hard for anybody. And my final, what do we say, out-of-body thought, this happened kind of, you know, in a succession of weeks was, you know, I don't have to be here. Um, I could give back my presence and return to NSA because I was still on my security clearances from NSA. So it was kind of, a, if you will, a transfer period. Anyway, uh, of course, I did stay at the uh, State Department, and I found really the most talented group of lawyers. And I think I, I will, again, credit myself a little bit. I think I may have done the right thing by trying to help them do what they did so well. Um, years later, um, I lost my passport right on the eve of going overseas. And my daughter said to me, mother, get a grip. She said, call the State Department. And somehow I was able to remember my number. And I picked up, or I, I called, the phone picked up, and I told them who I was. And she said, how are you? <laughs> she said, we'll get that taken care of right away. <laughs> so um, I think they appreciated a principal deputy who was prepared to support them. And that's what I tried to do. 
Well, how wonderful. Um, so I, there are so many things that I kind of want to tease out. First, um, I, w something that's remarkable is you made a demand um, uh, of them that they acceded to because they wanted you so much. Can you just like give some advice for women who are looking at career changes and need to find the strength to make demands on what would potentially be their future employer? How did you, you know, how did you have the confidence to say, well, I don't want a political appointee, uh, appointment. I would like a career position. Um, and like, how did you pull that off? Who knows? Um, I will say this, on, on the subject of advice, I try to be very careful in giving advice because everybody, of course, is, is unique. But one, one position I would stand by is to say you should never do anything if it gives you a sense of discomfort, one. And two, it's much more successful to work in places and on topics that you feel passionate about because that's where you will do your very best work. Um, Perhaps another bit of advice is to say, to learn to say please and thank you as often as you can, because typically whatever you're doing and doing well is because other people are supporting you. Um, so those are, you know, the, third, the final bit of advice I'd give is whenever you change jobs, it's very important to do it in a way that gives you a break of several weeks so that you can take a little bit of time off. Now you're going to say, well, did you do that? And the answer is going to be no, <laughs> but it's, nonetheless, it's good advice, I think. But you also didn't take your own advice as far as doing something that made you comfortable because you said that at the State Department, you were a little bit out of sorts at first. So can you talk a little bit about why that was and how you managed to right the ship and feel comfortable and confident in that position? Well, I don't know that I ever did. <laughs> um, I wanted to go to the State Department because, as I put it, I felt they were a group of abused children who needed a mother. And I was a mother, and I was there <laughs> to help them. And I meant, I meant to say that because at the time, uh, the legal advisor was known, what shall I say, notorious for blaming younger staff in the press when a decision went wrong even though it might have been his decision. And to me, that was just a violation of a, a first principle that was sacrosanct. And I thought they needed support. And I think I was right. They did need support. They did need to hear thank you. I'll tell another little story. Um, the first set of uh, awards that came through were extraordinary in their, even though it was the State Department, really they were a very, a robust set of awards for the work that the staff had done over the year. And I said to my secretary, how do we normally distribute these? And she said, in the mail. Well, at NSA, there would have been a little ceremony, you know, you would have, you'd have been brought in and made much of and so forth. And I said, do you think we could do better than this maybe? And so we figured out a little way to do a little ceremony with some leftover cakes from some diplomatic reception and I purchased an urn of coffee and none of this, you know, would have been necessary at NSA, we would have had coffee provided, but whatever. And then I got a photographer who brought in his kind of his brownie <laughs> and took pictures. And I felt so foolish. Here's this extraordinary bright group of people. And why had I put them through this, this bit of nonsense? At the end of the day, someone had slipped a note under my door and it said, Dear Elizabeth, today was the best day of my life. If George Bush can say thank you, I should be able to also. 
Well, you know, I tell that story because is anything more powerful to, to amplify, you know, why you do need to thank even the brightest people because they do such wonderful work. That is really a wonderful sentiment, um, especially because, um, uh, you know, having spent time both in the private sector and in the government sector, uh, taking the time out to recognize your people is something that it doesn't actually take a lot. Like the, the, the talk about, you know, what, what it took, you, you scrounge up some cakes and you, you had people come together and it was just so appreciated. It's just, yeah. It doesn't take a ton of effort, but it has such uh, an, an, an impact. Uh, and, you know, it, that's great uh, leadership principles. Something um, learned at NSA, I have to say. I would love to hear um, more about your substantive work at the State Department. What were some of the big things that you were working on then? Oh, wow. Well, I landed at the State Department. <laughs> Couldn't I suppose it's always this way at the State Department. But for that particular period, remarkably, the wall came down, the Berlin Wall. Well, you can imagine the amount of legal work and the issues that that produced. And then we had the invasion, we called it the incursion, of Panama. So we had a military action. Uh, it just it went on. I remember Christmas morning in my robe, and, and by the way, the State Department would call you at any time, day or night. It didn't matter. They never went to sleep, and so you had to be ready on a, you know, on a moment's notice. But in any event, at Christmas, I remember they said, call me from the Ops Center, we need to recognize Estonia. And I thought, oh my gosh, do we recognize governments or do we recognize nations? I, I can't remember now how I called that issue, but I did get it right. But it's really uh, quite extraordinary. And I think another, now this is, again, on the silly side, perhaps you'll say, but this was the time when, for the very first time, we were able to use secure conferencing. And the bad news was that that meant that conferences could go on with the State Department, the Defense Department, the intelligence agencies around the clock. And I remember sitting in the Situation Room and other places, you know, all night <laughs> and trying to keep my eyes open because these conferences just never ended. It was possible, as I said, you know, you, it was kind of as we're talking now, as opposed to how it heretofore had been where you had to go and actually be physically present with that other department that might be relevant. I mean, we talk all the time about on this podcast about having a front row seat to history, but you really had a front row seat to history. That's so phenomenal. Um, I think you'll, I, I hope you'll be delighted by the fact that um, I overheard my, my son who's 12 on a Zoom conference uh, and they were talking about the Berlin Wall and one kid goes, what's the Berlin Wall? And my kid says, well, and he told, he told them accurately what it was. They were learning about it in history. Good for him and good for you. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of a history nerd. Um, <laughs> So uh, let's uh, let's flip it back to Lisa to talk uh, a little bit more about like what's going on these days. So Elizabeth, you um, we at NSLT uh, are very interested in your work on civics education, and we come at it from a national security perspective because there is a very very strong indication that a lack of civics education has had an impact on how people are receiving uh, foreign influence campaign messages. 
we've we've all seen the young woman Tiffany, uh, whatever her name was, what was <laughs> Brittany from Cambridge Analytica talk about she was the business uh, development director there. Uh, but uh, her appearance on The Great Hack um, and subsequently on a couple of um, Kara Swisher's uh, podcasts has been really incredible because she has revealed that they would specifically target Facebook users who were deemed susceptible to influence. And one of the things apparently that makes you unusually as susceptible to influence is not just whether you're elderly or uh, live in rural environs where you have less access to people who might check your views, but one of the principal things is a lack of knowledge of civics. Can you talk to us a little bit about your work and why this became your mission? Well, I think what you're uh, introducing this topic or the words you're using is exactly right, Elisa. I've come to think of civic education as a national security imperative. Um, I didn't arrive at this notion, in, what should we say, overnight. It took me a while. I should, full disclosure, my mother was a social studies teacher. And of course, I became a lawyer. And it never dawned on me that um, the knowledge that I had gained over the years, I had a, a good civics grounding, um, was not widely shared. But I began to get a slight inkling of it when I was um, serving for a decade as a dean of a California law school. And a couple of things that stuck in my mind, little clues, was one where our then chief justice had put together a commission that he called an impartial a commission in support of an impartial judiciary. And he explained at the first meeting why that word had been chosen, impartial, not independent, as I would have done. He said, because surveys show that citizens don't know what independent means when it's applied to the judiciary. They think it's a runaway, unaccountable judiciary. Well, you know, I, I kind of took that on board and I served on the commission and we did some work and it began to look like there might be a real problem. About that time, I'd been interested to try and increase the amount of diversity in the law school application pool. And so we came upon the notion that maybe what we should do is to see whether we could get kids at a much earlier age, really high school and earlier, um, to be uh, alert to the opportunities within the legal world. And so we created, a group of us did, a law-themed high school. Well, it was wildly successful. Uh, low income, very diverse, 100% graduation and college going rate. And it was law themed. So I thought, well, this is wonderful. Let's see if we can expand on this model. And I approached an important funding source here in California. And she said, well, I don't think there's a gold standard curriculum for what you're trying to do. But she said, and this really just shocked me. She said, if there were, we don't have the teacher core to deliver it. So I had a couple of reasons to think, you know, um, we may not have the very best infrastructure to support civic education in this country that we need and that I had thought was in place. Well, so now we kind of, shall we say, go forward. And I became very interested in a project by the Center for Strategic and International Studies dealing with Russian disinformation and the campaign that goes beyond simply affecting our uh, voting structures, but to all of the fundamental pillars of democracy, and in particular, of course, the judicial system. Suzanne Spaulding, who's another 
very active member of the standing committee at the ABA on national security um, law is part of this. She's really the leader. And as we were talking to judges about being aware of this disinformation campaign so that they could be prepared for it, we began to suggest one important thing. Not only did they change their password and pay better attention to computer security, but that they should also think about creating uh, response mechanisms. And so we, we went along that path for a while and I found myself wondering, well, responding, talking to whom? The public? Did the public understand what these threats might mean and why the judiciary could be so vulnerable? So CSIS uh, did a, a little bit of an environmental scan and the results that they produced were simply horrific. The number of people who did not understand basic features of our democracy and the lack, and this gets to your point, the lack of trust in the democracy. Something like in the low 20s, students uh, believing that democracy was a good system. I mean, it was really breathtakingly uh, shocking statistics. And from that, we began to think, if we're going to counter this disinformation threat, if we're going to deal with um, how people receive and understand and process information, they're going to have to be better prepared with regard to civics. We also came to understand that civics has been downgraded for decades. So now we spend roughly 54 cents per student as opposed to something like $350 on more traditional STEM topics. We don't assess it with the National um, Assessment of Educational Progress as we do other topics. It's not required. It's therefore not something that teachers are prepared to teach, which tracks, of course, right back to that comment, we don't have the teacher core prepared to teach civics. And it's true, they're not. So that's the bad news. And I think there's a lot of bad news because I think you're quite right. It creates a vulnerability from a national perspective. With all that's going on today, um, the pandemic, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, just so much happening, it's an opportunity to say, how do we build forward? And I think one of the most important things is to reinvigorate civics. The good news is, and I'm mindful that we're talking today, uh, right on the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. And in honor of that, two a bipartisan pair of uh, Congress people, Tom Cole and Rosa DeLauro, are introducing something called the Education for Democracy Act for 2010 bill. And it would provide a billion dollars. Now, I don't know that this is ever going to happen at that level, but it really seeks to put civics on the map again, or, or what shall we say, on the agenda to provide the support financially we need and to bring attention to it. They've introduced that bill today on the 17th of September. Um, and I hope it's the beginning of a shift in approach on this topic. I sincerely hope you're right because um, uh, civics is not part of standardized testing that would be required to get into university at this time. Um, it, it does become relevant as you go on and study government and you develop an interest in things like a public policy graduate degree or uh, pursuing law. But just to um, let our listeners know, I, I did a little research um, before you came on because I know how important this is to you, but if Congress needed any persuading, um, as of late 2019, 
um, it's 69% of Americans were getting their news from social media, which already uh, places importance on social media, which doesn't have professional journalists necessarily, standards or ed editors with ethics rules. Um, and as we mentioned before, the less you know, um, the more susceptible you are to foreign influence. But specifically, um, I th think it's interesting to look at the questions that are on the citizenship exam. There are a hundred of them on the topic of, ci of civics. If you want to be a citizen of this great country, you have to pass this test. But only 39% of Americans can pass this test. So people being sworn in to uh, as citizens of the United States do better. And here are some of the very simple questions. What do we call the first 10 amendments to the Constitution? What are two rights in the Declaration of Independence? What does the President's Cabinet do? So uh, Woodrow Wilson Center has discovered through uh, polling that 39% of Americans could pass that test. Um, so I do believe it's a problem and I hope that it's this kind of data that will inspire. Um, one of the concerns I think we have right now is um, what if sort of a lack of civics education is working for one party or another? Um, what do you see as a possible response to a, hey, it's working for us right now and we have power? Um, what might be a, a good response based on your experience? Well, you know, I'm very much hopeful that this could become a bipartisan effort. And that's why it was so important to have both a Republican and a Democratic uh, congressperson support this bill. The group that has taken the most active role in trying to promote improved, I should say, trying to focus the attention on the lack of civic education is something called Civic Now. Um, it uh, works in collaboration with a number of uh, nonprofit organizations, notably one created by Sandra Day O'Connor called iCivics. And they have made it their business to reach out in a bipartisan way to make sure that both sides of the aisle participate. Um, I do think there's the opportunity here for bipartisan support. Um, having said that, one of the concerns that teachers have when this topic is proposed for instruction is that, as mentioned, they've not been prepared to teach it. It can be very controversial. It needs to be managed in a way that doesn't choose sides, but informs and gives students the, what they need to understand how they can engage with the process. So I hope it's not a Republican or a Democratic uh, issue. It, it ought to be an American issue. You know, I'll put it to you this way. Like it or no, I like it. We are a nation of immigrants. We're an incredibly diverse nation. What is it that links us together? What's our glue? And I think our glue is a common legal culture. And that's what civic education ensures that we continue to have. It's really, I think, Sandra Day O'Connor's genius was to say, this doesn't just pass through our genetic pool. We have to relearn it each 
with each generation, and that's of course why those, those education tests, or I should say the civics tests for new citizens is important, but you're so right. That's not enough for a citizen who grows up in this country. They ought to get the education that allows them to engage. Uh, and I think that's, that's part of the issue. Would you agree that whoever wins the next election should take that as a serious issue, uh, a policy that they advance through the executive branch, if necessary, to help bring us together again? It seems that it's a, a unifying, um, if you will, a lingua franca in times when we're so divided. I think that's right. And I like your, your use of the words lingua franca. I've, I've used culture as my, what shall we say, um, symbol of, of what I think civic education does. But it is a basis on which our nation resides and what we need to make sure that everyone feels included with the opportunity to actually participate in a meaningful way. And you know, going back to Russian disinformation, Keeping in mind, they don't necessarily promote one side or the other. Their interest is in destroying the system and making uh, the diversity not a strength, as I would have seen it, and I think you see it, but rather a weakness. So to try and divide people so that they become disheartened, discouraged, and they give up on democracy. And that's where civic education then becomes, I think, uh, the solution to this problem. Between the, the disinformation efforts, uh, take one classic example, supporting both Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter and doing it in a very unhelpful way designed to stoke anger and frustration with the system and ultimately to get people to give up on it. But, but what do we do when we have, you know, when we don't have a bipartisan resistance to um, these effects when we when the bills that have been introduced uh, to bolster our resistance to election interfere have uh, interference have stalled um, what do we do when one side refuses to reject um, the support they might get from foreign powers education is my answer um, it's a very frightening time, I think, for our democracy. Um, part of the education that we're getting is happening today um, in the, you know, the media, the constant refrain. I have to say, once again, to point out the military, I think the, the reaction they had to the Lafayette Square situation was pretty remarkable. They stood up and said, no, uh, this is not who we are. And I think then education has to happen not only in the schools, but it has to happen through podcasts like this. It has to happen in what we write about um, in the paper by way of op-eds, the reporting that happens. You know, we didn't get here overnight. I think some would point to the response to Sputnik where we kind of over, if you will, overachieved by shifting our focus to technical subjects away from civics. That's how we got additional time for math, science, and even English. Well, you know, we've got ourselves in a hole. We've got to dig out of it, but we've got to begin soon because I think time is running out. You know, I wonder, this also begs a question um, to me, Elizabeth, you've mentioned something um, that I, I'd like to draw you out about. Um, the media has become 
politicized in the sense that there are extremely liberal media outlets and extremely conservative media outlets and some even further out on the spectrum. And um, the average person um, may not like to be challenged in their beliefs and so they seek shelter and reinforcement by listening to this. Do you see a role for civics education in at least making people aware of um, where there might be errors, for example, in reporting, whether that error occurs on an extremely right-wing or an extremely left-wing news site. We've all heard those, probably on both. Um, but do you see a role there in educating the public and will civics education be enough to change this aspect of our culture, which has become so dependent on position reinforcement uh, through filtering media to suit us? Well, I don't know that it's the only solution, Lisa, but it certainly, I think, has got to be a part of it. And you're quite right. There is, uh, in the way in which social media operates, a deliberate effort to try and reinforce whatever that view was into, uh, you were pointing the Cambridge Analytica um, piece, where that's essentially what they did. They figured out what bias people came in with in terms of their various views and they then just fed that and got it more and more aggressively in front of them. Um, there's a, a multifaceted, however, I think response to this. Now certainly talking about civic education again, I think it's got to include um, instruction, education on how to evaluate media that students can take advantage of. And I think it's, I'm hopeful that at a younger age, they're more able to be open-minded and to be able to engage that kind of understanding and advice. I think the older we get, the less likely that's true. And some of the data I've seen suggests that the people who are curiously most susceptible to all of this um, mis disinformation kind of manipulation by social media are those over 60, over 70. So it's the older part of the population. They're not presumably sophisticated as they should be. But I said it's a multi-pronged, I think, um, problem. I think that the social media platforms have got to be addressed um, from a, a regulatory perspective. I think we've kind of let the, the genie out of the bottle here, and now we've got to figure out how to get it back in. And there have been, as interestingly, some considerable, I think, bipartisan support for making some changes there. I think that's important as well. Uh, but again, perhaps because my mother was an educator, that's where I come down at, at the end of the day. I would love to know, Elizabeth, um, especially since we're talking about solutions, uh, considering the, the, ex the kind of extraordinary engagement that we have um, with uh, of people outside the Beltway, in politics because things are, are so partisan and people are um, interested. Uh, is there a way that we can use that to springboard into some of these reforms? You know, if you look at our, our circumstances today with the combination of the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, here in California, where I am, um, the remarkable horrific fires that we've been dealing with, which of course brings once again climate change to the fore. Uh, we've got a terrible set of crises, but they can be opportunities as well. And I'm 
hopeful that your son's generation may have the seeds of change. They do seem to be a much more um, engaged group when they're given the tools to engage. I think of the Parkland students and what a remarkable example they are of students who are still in high school who could respond to concerns that they had and actually step forward. So I hope that um, in the course of sorting out these terrible problems we're confronting, that we're going to come up with some solutions. But I think if you can say anything good about particularly what's happened with Black Lives Matter and the pandemic combined, is that they have stripped off the top of maybe a, uh, what should we say, a narrative that's wrong, that you suddenly see there's tremendous inequality in our nation. And that's got to be addressed. We can't be successful. If it doesn't work for everybody, it's not going to work for anyone. I'd, I'd also love to hear, um, you know, there's the most of our conversation has been focused on educating the younger generation, but I, I wonder what you think about the opportunities for, you know, the boomers, right, who are, who are widely mocked by the millennials or the, the you know, the older generation who, who tend to be more civically engaged, who tend to vote in higher numbers. I just think about one of my older family members who, you know, read pretty progressive, but would never have imagined voting for a gay person for president even 10 years ago and has made uh, a shift in, 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 you know, towards acceptance. What can we do in order to um, influence or, or to give some education to um, older Americans? Well, you know, we've talked a lot about civic education and thinking about it as something that happens in, you know, the K through 12 period, even K through 16, or, you know, perhaps beyond, but talking education. But we ought not to fail to think about organizations such as Rotary, others that are social organizations that cater to the, the uh, shall I say, the demographic that you're talking about. And I think talking with them uh, engaging them, you won't get everybody to open their minds and think about this. But I think not everybody is going to be lost. I've done a little bit of talking to Rotaries myself, and they've come up, of course, on always civic education, and they've come up and expressed concern and reaction and a willingness, I think, to, to engage in the concerns that that represents. So not all is lost. <laughs> It's the only way I can sleep at night is to think so. <laughs> well, I, I hope too that organizations that exist to serve seniors would um, do more education. I'm thinking of organizations like the um, American Association of Retired Persons. Um, I'm also thinking of these organizations I think are probably less popular with young persons, such as Rotary whatever and community leaders generally who might have access to um, older folks. Um, I guess listening to you, I still see that there is also a, a, an urban rural divide, um, which leaves me a little bit concerned and we haven't really touched on that. But if civics were mandatory, maybe that divide would close. Um, if it were linked, for example, to federal education funds or something, um, and there could be a bipartisan agreed upon sort of core curriculum based really entirely on the Constitution and law. 
Um, and it is fascinating listening to you talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. Yvette and I have been responding with utter dismay that uh, anyone would believe that the simple statement that Black Lives Matter uh, means that other lives don't. And yet that is the message has, that has been peddled um, by some in an effort, as you described, to separate us, which is, it, I'm continue to be dismayed, which I should not be, but I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing. Um, and I hope it's successful. I hope we see some very good legislation on this. And I wanna thank you um, for your work on for, for myself, but also for my son and his generation, who I think will be the beneficiaries of this. And I hope we can ex experience renewed national unity um, and an understanding that, you know, we do face uh, really a common enemy in any nation that would seek to destroy us, whether that's Russia or any other. You know, I, I'm really honored to be one of your 19. Um, it's, it's a real pleasure. And particularly on this day, um, the anniversary of signing of the Constitution, never mind the introduction of this legislation. Um, if I could add one further thought, um, as dismal as we may sometimes think the situation is, we can also look outside our nation's boundaries and see some indications of hope. So Finland, for example, which as you know, is nestled right alongside the Russian bear, has been for many years uh, the target of this kind of disinformation. And their approach to inoculating themselves is civic education. So they have managed to really, now it's a small nation to be sure, what, six million? Uh, but they've managed to confront this successfully. And I think if we begin to realize that, you know, we're not alone in this, there are others who are dealing with it and that it can be dealt with and there are uh, solutions to this problem. Well, um, on the other hand, maybe what I should say of that is that we hope your grandmother, was it your grandmother? Um, Will, will light the way for all of us who are over 60, because I do think that there are, there are minds out there that are, are available to be touched. We just need to reach out and start touching them. That's a great thought. That's a beautiful thought. Elizabeth, we're so glad that you joined us. We hope you'll come back. Um, I'm going to watch with great interest. I, uh, I get my email alerts from GovTrack. I look at Congress. Uh, .gov every day to see what is out there. I hope to see some movement, um, some positive movement on civics education uh, through legislation and appropriation. Uh, and I'm grateful to you for everything that you're doing. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening to NSLT. We'll be back next week with more content and more amazing women in national security law. Thank you. And in addition to celebrating 19 women in, in national security this week, we are also celebrating, as Elizabeth said, Constitution Day. September 17th, uh, 1787 was the day that the Constitution was signed. So every September 17th, Congress is recognized as Constitution Day, uh, when we should all be learning about the Constitution, civics, and citizenship. So if you've listened all the way through to this podcast and you're hearing me now, you have definitely done your civic duty for the day. Happy Constitution Day. Uh, and please remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments and feedback. Find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org.
And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do everything it can to keep you informed and to give you context on all the fast-moving legal developments that are occurring right now. You won't have to search for that kind of information beyond your smartphone and lap screen, but you should read and you should study civics. This can't be the only source of your information. We're honored you're here. But in order to help you out, we're gonna hyperlink a lot of the things that Elizabeth has talked about. We'll hyperlink the proposed legislation that she's mentioned, Civics Now, iCivics, um, and we may throw in a couple of cases that we think might be fun for you to read as well. And listeners, don't forget the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity, not on behalf of any agency or firm. All right, be well, everyone, and be safe. We're all in this together, even though we're apart, even though we all have different views. Let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack. Thank you.